Welcome to Live from My Drum Room, the Modern Drummer Podcast, and please welcome my guest today, truly a, a legend, and I, I'm not using that term loosely, truly a legend, Mr. Lorne Wheaton, Lorne Gump Wheaton. <laughs> Lorne. Hey, John. How you doing, buddy? How are you, buddy? I'm good. I'm, I'm good. good. You? I'm good. I'm, it's we'll great try to not to talk over each other doing this. <laughs> no, well, I'm going to let you do all the talking. I, I probably should have told you that you're going to be doing oh, all the talking. Oh no, no, today. no, no, <laughs> uh, no! I'll take I'll take questions, but uh, no, it's good to see you, man. It's good to see you too. I, it's it's been a minute. I I want to say probably, um, maybe at a Nam show some years ago. Maybe might have been the last time I got to see you in person. Um, it might have been the last Nam show that we were both at. I would think. I'm not sure what year that was i remember the last one i was at uh i got very sick i was living with billy morgan our friend billy morgan and <laughs> he was kind enough to put me into his room for the three days that uh that i was there and i'm not sure what year it was um it could very well have been 2015 maybe Oh, but okay. I got very sick with uh, whatever flu. It was pre-COVID, of course. Um, and I spent two of the three days in the room in bed on his pull-out couch in his room. <laughs> and that was my NAM experience. And I couldn't uh, have got out of there any faster, believe me. I but know, that might have been the last time we saw each other in person. Well, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I, that sounds about right. I, I had already left Zildjian, but I, I was, you know, I was going every year. And uh, and the last, I would say probably the last 10 or so years, we could talk about NAM all day, and, we, and I promise we won't. But um, the last 10 or so years of going to that show, or maybe even more, I think all of us would come home with like this awful, you know, flu that you couldn't shake for weeks. Nam, you know. Namthrax. Namthrax is what we called it. That's yes. right. Yeah. Yeah. Man. So, it was like, yeah. and everybody, everybody dealt with it because it's such a social thing. Yeah. And you see, you get people from all around the globe coming uh, and what dragon, whatever germs they're, they're dragging. And, and uh, you know, it, 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 pandemic was never in anybody's minds back then. Uh, but you would just get the flu or you would get some kind of cold or something like that. And it wasn't very often that you didn't come back from Anaheim and you didn't have something going on. Yeah. And it seemed like, excuse me, this is just pollen right now, but it seemed like it would hang on too for like weeks, like worse than a yeah. lot of colds you'd get, you know? And um, Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's good to see you, buddy. And I want to, um, I know you're, we'll talk about this too. You've had an incredible career. I, I, I think about, you started talking a little bit about this off the air and I, and, and you kind of answered a question I wanted to ask you, which is when, did, when did you start, um, you know, working for bands, whether it be, you know, as a drum tech or as a, as a crew guy, like when did that all start for you? Uh, my interest started when I was in high school. Uh, and that would have been, you know, 14, 15, uh, not necessarily interested in the industry, but I was a, a fan of, yeah. of a lot of bands that were coming out of England. Uh, first of all, the, the Beatles and then the who, and it just progressed from there. Uh, yeah. so, you know, I was going to high school and I was doing my best to go into high school. My mother was pretty proud of me at the time, but I, you know, 
a lot of people have difficulties going to school and and when you when your mind is elsewhere sure. uh, but uh, I volunteered with with being you know they would have the school dances and we also had a coffee shop that they would have bands come in and play uh, neighborhood bands you know Toronto bands uh, just to keep the kids off the street and get in trouble so uh, my high school, George Vanier High School, was in the same neighborhood as uh, a few other high schools around the area, uh, which happened to be the high school that Getty and Alex went to. And this is back when John Rutsey was the drummer. Okay. So, as I said, I would be volunteer. I would volunteer for the, the school dances, help them bring in the gear not necessarily do anything after that because they were pretty much on their own. They'd set up their own stuff. I can't even remember if they even had somebody back then. I know Ian Grandy came in. He was the original front of house guy, um, sound guy. And uh, I'm not sure when he actually started, but they were pretty much on your own. You're carrying your own gear in the back of a uh, station wagon or whatever. So I volunteered to do that. So that's where I met Getty and Alex the first time. And then uh, it kind of progressed to uh, a couple of years later, getting hooked up and still kind of being in high school, but wishing I really wasn't at the time, which was, you know, not the best of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And my mother didn't agree with that at all, but I ended up getting hired by a, a, a Toronto band named Gatto, which kind of, you know, they started paying me, I can't even remember what it was. I think it might've been 50 bucks a week or something, but 50 bucks was more than I had Yeah. Uh, yeah. if I wasn't doing it. So um, we started touring and it kind of grew pretty quickly. They were doing the clubs, high schools, the same thing that I was doing when I was at high school. Uh, but I decided to go that route and, um, and that's where it all kind of started. Yeah. So, so to just jump backwards a second, when you met, um, Alex and Getty, um, the two, two of the founding members of Rush, uh, were they playing covers or were they playing their own music at that point? Like when you oh, were, they, they, yeah, they were playing covers. They were playing uh, covers, uh, a, a three piece band back then too, or, or. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think they, they just had turned back into a three piece because they actually at one point were a four piece. Keyboard at one or, time, and I'm not sure. Um, I think it was. Uh, Excuse me. I'm not sure whether it was a singer. Uh, it might okay. have been a singer, or possibly. I, you know, I'd have to go into the, you know, the books of Rush to find that out because it's it's everywhere. People have gone very in depth with Rush's history, uh, but it was three piece, and John Rutsey was definitely the drummer at the time. Um, and, uh, like I said, Getty and Alex both went to a neighborhood high school, just not my high school. So you'd see these people every once in a while sure. hanging out, yeah. whatever. I, you know, this is cool. I had no idea that your history went back that far with, with Getty and Alex. I, you know, yeah, you, yeah that's, that's incredible to have you, you know, and the full the circle of, yeah. Yeah, the full circle of starting to work with him, you know, one-on-one with Neil, especially in 2001, was a full circle for me. So it was kind of interesting. But through through so many years, uh, late 70s into the 80s, we did so much work 
when I was with the Support Act, Max Webster, uh, under the same management, we did so many rush tours that it was all one big family anyways. Yeah. We all, yeah. we all knew each other by that point. So it was very cool. And it was a lot of fun back in those days. It was, it was difficult sometimes, but uh, they made it more fun for us. And they really loved Max Webster. Uh, it was a good double bill. I'll bet. Yeah. Um, and the, the management company was Anthem Entertainment. Was that, if I remember correctly? Yeah. Or, yeah. And actually it was, it would have been SRO back then, SRO management. Uh, Anthem, I think came from when they started the record company. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it turned into SRO Anthem, but since then it's, it's back to SRO management. Uh, but it was always Ray Daniels and Vic mm. Wilson was his partner back then. Uh, and Max Webster was, was one of their acts along with a, a handful of others, but we did a lot of touring with Rush. That's so we cool. were one big family. And so it so was very had, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you had this history with Neil going back well before you worked with him. So there was, yeah. you know, I, my, my little experience that I had with Neil was that, you know, he really had to trust you and he obviously trusted you i mean you became his you know i mean really his right arm for, if, by my estimation uh you know i mean it's i i think about it. and I, and as i say we'll get into that a little bit more but um you you worked for steve smith and journey in the 80s if i remember correctly right yes. that was was that your first yeah. sort of big it, major tour it, yes it was yeah. um aside from the the shows we were doing with max and rush yeah. Uh, which would have been arenas a lot of the times, but this was a stadium tour. And I was out with a band called April wine, uh, working with Jerry Mercer. And we were doing a bunch of these in the, in the eighties, early eighties, they would have these world series of rock uh, festivals that they would take over a lot of the baseball stadiums. And there'd be, you know, Sammy Hagar, uh, journey, uh, Ted Nugent, um, all these bands, kind of did all these things. Um, and I was with April wine at the time and we just happened to be, I think we were in St. Louis, uh, at the ballpark there and, uh, journey, I think we're headlining or one of the headliners. It could have been a, a, a few different co-headline kind of things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I met a few of the guys from journey, one being Benny Collins, who was Steve's drum tech at the time, who eventually moved on to be their production manager and eventually moved on to be production managers for or a production manager for many people, mm -hmm. including Michael Jackson. And, and, uh, I think they even did the stones for a while, but, um, he has passed away. Rest in peace, Benny. But, uh, I did this show with him and a couple of days later, uh, we were continuing on with, with April wine doing shows. And I got a phone call from their management asking me if I'd be interested uh, in meeting up with them because we were headed out to the West coast and we were playing a gig in, in either San Francisco or Oakland with April wine. I'm not sure we were, whether we were headlining. I think we probably were cause they were doing pretty good in the States at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of the guys, Benny one uh, and one of the managers came out to somewhat, check me out and interview me and see if I was interested in doing such a thing. And I was blown away by even the interest. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I got hired 
and they had a massive studio uh, stadium tour that they were about to embark on, uh, which was Frontiers. And uh, yeah. so they wanted me to come in and do rehearsals <clears throat> to start off. Uh, we uh, they flew me out to Oakland to their warehouse, figured out what I was using, what gear was. That was when I first met John Good. He showed up with uh, one of the first uh, versions of the DW pedals, which were from the Camco era somewhat. Yeah. Uh, and that's when Steve, I'm pretty sure st- Steve started using his pedals at that point. But that's where I met John Good the first time. That's incredible. Long time ago. Yeah, no man. drums had ever been produced by DW at that point. Yeah. It was all, uh, you know, I think they came up with a, a throne at the, at the start and then they moved from there and uh, pedals and, and the such and hardware. But uh, we started there and I did that tour and it was a massive tour, massive learning curve, um, you know, being out in the road with, at that point there was, I think there was three crew buses and seven semis, which is small compared to what people tour with these days but we made it happen and we were filling up the stadiums everywhere man and doing multiple nights in in arenas if we were in an arena so it was it was quite the experience and i loved working with steve i learned so much from steve um he became a very good friend he ended up being my best man when i was married in hawaii at the end of the tour um and all the guys showed up at the the uh, we were just in at city hall getting married of course but they all showed up and it was just a great family and i love steve oh that's go way back i know he always spoke yeah. highly of you i remember um at some point maybe oh gosh i, I it's so hard to keep dates straight but i remember I, again back at the nam show steve was doing something for sonar and i think you worked for him or you were at i remember you guys had sort of a reunion i remember coming over and seeing steve and you guys were hanging and he said and and i already knew this anyway but he said lauren and i go back to you know the 80s you know he was my my first you know big drum tech or or whatever you know and 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 you could see that there's that that bond with you guys it's really cool yeah well we did we we both did journey and then he decided to take a leave of absence and focus on vital information which was his his jazz band yeah, uh, and some serious heavyweight players, and you know, Dean Brown, uh, and just killer band. So there was a couple of handpicked people from the Journey uh, crew that uh, decided to move on with that. So we did that. I did that for probably another two years, I guess, of playing clubs and and uh, just uh, doing all sorts of you know just. Uh, uh, gigs that were weren't quite uh, stadiums, yeah, but yeah. great experience nonetheless. And and listening to that band every night was just a treat. I'll bet, man, playing great music. And then, and and I, oh, yeah. I think when I first met you, I think you were working for Mickey Curry. Does that sound right? In the late eighties, that would have been. Well, that would have been. I got hard to Mick uh, for Mick on. Uh, I was out in BC. I had moved out from Toronto to British Columbia. Yeah as a production manager for a government project, uh, which was called Music 91. So they moved me out there. I was thinking I'd just go do the gig and then probably end up back in Toronto eventually. Uh, I got out there and I had all sorts of artists 
uh, MC Hammer, Bob Hope, Tony Bennett, all these different artists were on the shows that I did throughout the summer. And when we got to uh, the second last show that I had, which was in a Soyuz, British Columbia, Brian Adams was on the show. He was the artist of the day. So, and he had just finished recording Waking Up the Neighbors, which ended up, you know, going on to be a massive, massive record. Everything I do, I do for you, all that stuff, all those yeah, okay, you know, yeah. key songs. Uh, so he was just gearing up to do that tour, which was scheduled to be a couple of years long. And they needed a drum tech. Uh, the other guy wasn't interested in coming back or whatever. Uh, and I had had Brian Adams out in 83. They were the support act on the Journey Tour on a lot of those dates. So we knew each other from that. But back then, it wasn't Mickey playing drums. First time I met Mickey was Hall and & Oates. And I was with Corey Hart, uh, Sunglasses at Night, Corey Hart. Yeah, and we yeah. were doing a lot of uh, Hall & Oates shows in the United States. And Mickey was the drummer at the point at that time. Him and G.E. Smith were still in the band. Mm. Um, and that's where I met Mickey for the first time. But then we got reconnected when I got hired to do the tour in 91. And I was with him for nine great years. Mm. I love Mickey. He's such a great friend. I just talked to him the other day. Uh, he's doing well. Uh, but him and I got very, very close. That's great, man. Yeah, Mickey, I, I love that. And guy. such a cool guy. Such a cool guy, man. He's yeah. he's the funniest guy you'll ever talk to in conversation. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's he's part comedian, uh, but he is just such a wonderful guy and such a killer player. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, we're yeah. good friends. Good friends. That's great, man. Well, that, that's when I, I think that's when I must have been early 90s when I first uh, met you through working for Mickey and... And, you know, and all those years later and, um, yeah. and, and you, so from there, basically you went from that to working for Neil, or is there something in between? Um, oh no, there was, uh, I, I got hired. Uh, well, I was still with him. Yes. Later on, uh, Brian started doing a lot more sporadic touring. So, uh, there was other things I had done during that period, which people called me up to do. One was Van Halen. Um, oh, okay. What happened there was the tour manager for Rush, Liam. Uh, he, you know, Rush were off the road, so they were allowed to go out and get other jobs when they weren't needed. So he got hired by Van Halen to go out as the accountant. Uh, and I think tour manager or one of the tour managers. And they, John, John Douglas uh, had done the, Australia leg of it. This was with Gary Sharon. This was Van Halen three, as they called them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, JD had done Australia and he had previous uh, things that he needed to do. I think something to do with his art. Uh, so uh, he wasn't able to do the United or the, the remainder of the tour, which would have been the U S and Europe eventually. And so I got the call from Liam asked if I was available. And at that point, like I said, Brian was doing a little bit more sporadic touring at the time. So I had space to be able to do it. So I went down. Cool. In fact, I knew that I was going to have a whole year and that would have been, 
98, if I remember right. So I did that. There was other things that I did uh, yeah. through that period. Van Halen was probably the longest one. It lasted for about a year. Uh, but then in 91, um, actually in 90, I was still with Brian, uh, but I was, I was getting kind of bored. Um, I didn't want to leave Mickey, but there was just not enough for me to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I got a call once again, uh, in, it would have been 80 or 97. I went out as a, uh, uh, second carpenter on the, uh, test for echo rush tour. So I went out just to set up the props do anything a carpenter tour carpenter does. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure whether that was them working me kind of into the fold of eventually taking care of Neil or not. I'm not sure what was happening back then between his previous tech and Neil. Uh, But I was working on the tour nonetheless. So that was great. Uh, That happened for a summer. Then I went back to Brian. We had shows. Um, and then in 90, Liam called me again, and this was after the first tragedies that happened to Neil with his wife and his daughter, uh, first of all, his daughter and then his wife. Um, and they weren't sure when he was going to be interested in coming back or if he was, um, nobody wanted to pressure him to do anything. So they were kind of on hold, but they decided to book a studio in, in Toronto. And, uh, you know, uh, they called me and asked because I've done, I've taken care of all instruments over my career. I can do any of the stuff, keyboards, uh, guitars. I did more guitars than anything for the longest time, but I could also do the drums. So they brought me in and took care of all the, the equipment during the recording session in Toronto. And that lasted a year. Yeah. So, uh, and that was, a, it was a great year of getting back together again and, and just, you know, we were ready for when Neil was ready kind of thing, um, which eventually happened, you know, two months into it. And we started working hard and uh, we got that record done. And then there was actual talk of going out and touring that record. And once uh, Neil was was good with, with the idea, they just said, well, it only makes sense for you to take care of Neil. And I went, absolutely. So wow. that's where it started. Man. Well, and would that have been with that and tour? I, I never looked back after. Yeah, I know. I know. No kidding. And I, <laughs> I remember seeing you guys in 2002. In fact, it was it was in June. I don't know if you remember this specifically, but you guys did a show at Mohegan Sun or one of the places in Connecticut. Jim McGathy and I came down because ahead of that time, um, I had reached out to you because we wanted to put Neil on a, on a Zildjian box set with like along mm-hmm. like his picture with Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. And so I emailed you. I, I remember have, that. Remember that? Yeah. You, you were, you were the guy, you yeah. were the conduit. You, I sent it to you, you forwarded it to Neil. And then next thing yep. I know, Neil's emailing me directly and we're communicating. And um, you had Jim and I come down to Connecticut, presented him with, with some mock-ups of it. And that was an incredible meeting with him. And I, and I remember the significance of it because it was the year that he turned 50. He was born in 52. Mm-hmm. So it was 2002. Yeah. But that was 
This was in June, and I know his birthday is September. And driving home, Jim and I heard on the radio that John Entwistle had passed away, which was just this freaky, like we're coming home from seeing you guys and we're like hearing the radio, you know, this, this tragic news. But, but my point to all this is I, I feel like you had been with him just a little bit of time at that point. Um, and I'm not just saying this cause I'm talking to you right now, Lauren, but you made, made it so easy, um, to, you know, take care of things like that, 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 um, guys like me on the, from the industry side, were looking to do, you know, you were a great conduit. I think we had a couple of back and forth where you, forwarded some messages and forwarded some things. And then I think Neil just kind of said, I'll, I'll take it from here or something. And, and, um, and, you know, it was a, a great memory that I have of working with him. So, well, he, he liked to be hands-on with, with everything like that, except for, uh, if he had other things that was on his mind that he needed to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I took over. Um, that's uh, to me, uh, if you're working with, uh, a client, you know, you're, uh, you're there for him sure. and whatever yeah. else might come to you, you know, um, and not necessarily a management, uh, position, but you're there as maybe a right-hand person, assistant, whichever, and, and I, it kind of all goes together, right. When you're working with a client. So, sure. yeah. um, but I don't mind doing that because. Uh, I, I like to be involved in what I'm going to be doing because eventually I'm going to be working with whatever product um, he may be talking to somebody about um, or if they need input, um, that's right. why I'm there. So I'm the I one that's going to be working with it. So Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely got that sense that he really enjoyed having you be part of that whole process too, you know, knowing that he had somebody he could, you know, that has been around, you, you know, people, you know, products you know the industry um and i have to think that made his life that much easier too you know just to know that he had you to sort of lean on in those situations and um so when you so when you got when you got the call to to work for for neil full-time um 20 some odd years ago how was that um did it feel like you know i, I can only imagine it must have felt like you'd sort of come home in, in a lot of ways you know that the you know you you were working with you know one of the absolute greatest drummers that has ever walked the earth um someone who's known to be so dedicated and you know i use the word meticulous but in a good way you know someone who's very very um well meticulous i guess for no for lack of a better word and and you're like you're like his go-to guy you know was there did you ever feel pressure from that or did you did you feel that did you ever feel that, the, you know, there was something that you couldn't handle or, or, uh, or, or, you know, anything like that? Well, it was back with the family that I loved from the seventies. Yeah. So it was a little easier to slip back into it. Uh, there was different people around, you know, for the most part, there was management people that weren't there anymore. And, and, uh, a couple of the guitar tech or uh, one of the guitar techs was still there from the old days, as well as the keyboard tech, Tony was there. So it was, it was kind of full circle going back to the family that I originally loved from the seventies and eighties. Uh, so that made it a little easier. Of course I felt pressure. I think if you don't feel pressure um, with a, a high end gig, like I had, like I was coming into, uh, which was, you know, the first thing I saw was, 
a bunch of drum cases with uh, a whole bunch of oddball hardware uh, and a drum set that really hadn't been loved in quite a while, which was the Red Sparkle Vapor Trails kit. And so that was dumped on me in the studio and, you know, drum boards and everything screwed in. And I'm going, okay, I have no (laughs) idea what's going on here. Because I never really examined it when I was out as the carpenter and watching Larry work every day. Everyone, I'd drop by and stuff, but I really didn't take a real close look at everything. I knew how, how, uh, you know, it it was different from other kits because there was no tripods. There was no conventional hardware or anything like that. But this was all dumped on me. So I was the only one there as well as trying to get all restringing, you know, 50 of Alex's guitars and (laughs) six of Ged's basses. And then I'm trying to put this drum set together. And uh, when he came, when he finally came in, you know, a couple of weeks later, after I had many days of being able to try and get it properly set up, he came in and sat down and he said, I, uh, I don't know. I think it's right. <laughs> so cause he, had, he hadn't played, he hadn't played in quite a few years. So, but uh, no, it was, the pressure was always there. You, you, I put pressure on myself. Yeah. Uh, that's just how I roll. But I think um, I'm a, you know, I, I want things perfect. And that's how I, that's how I run myself. I, I want it perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm my worst enemy sometimes. That's the I, problem. Knowing you, I, I would think that too, that I, I, I would see the pressure coming from your, your own desire for it to be perfect, you know, all the time and, and not any pressure that Neil himself is putting on you, but just like you say, that you want it to just be right. By the way, I just have to quickly tell you that a whole bunch of your friends are watching and say hello. Uh, John Tempesta, uh, Dave Abrazis, <laughs> our old buddy Ron Donette, who was on a couple of weeks ago, as you may or may not know. Uh, I, so- I saw him. He was awesome. He was great, right? And he 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 referred to you as yeah. the professor's professor, which I love. That's that's <laughs> that's a run. That's a Danette uh, okay. ism for sure. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. everybody says hello and they send their love to you. Popular guy, Lauren. Back yeah. at him. Cool. Back at him. So so, all those years, um, I you know I I just I think about, uh, you know I mean just the 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 gig that you had working with Neil and you know the closeness that you guys have and I and I I want to you know uh, say I'm so sorry even a couple of years later that he's not with us anymore and I I know that was had to be a really really hard thing for you and and the guys in his inner circle guys and gals you know and and uh I I think I speak for you know millions of people around the world that it was just, it, it just such a, even now it's just such a loss, you know, it's just, it's just such a huge kind of void, you know, he, 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 he filled such a, a great big space in the drum world. Um, but. You well, know, he, he outlived the deadline that they gave him, you know, when he was diagnosed, it's, it's interesting because I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was getting on a plane the next day um, to come out and, and celebrate his birthday. And, uh, I got a phone call from his assistant and, um, I was shocked. And, 
it was it was tough and so yeah. i went out there and and uh you know we were there when he came out of the surgery and um all his close inner circle friends and uh we dealt with it he was in the best of hands that he could ever have been in with the surgery the surgeons and and everybody at cedar sinai and and uh, but it was absolute shock because it was only a year before that that we called it quits and he had all these plans and uh all of a sudden this shit's happening um so it was tough but um he outlived the expectancy that they were you know they were giving him all sorts of it's only going to be so long and and three and a half three and a half years later he's still fighting man and uh i saw him just before he passed and and uh it was it was some of the saddest things i've ever seen and and uh but man he was uh, he was the strongest guy i've ever met in my life um and uh yeah big loss big loss and and a big loss of of, of a good friend I, I I know. I, I was just going to say the the little that I knew him, he strikes me as someone that um, was tough mentally too. Like that that um, it's the only way to describe it, right? I mean, he he. I I think of two situations where um, two of our mutual friends had passed away, and and uh, uh, after you know after he had left Zildjian, we didn't have a, a business relationship anymore uh a couple of years later i saw him saw him at ian wallace's um memorial service drummer ian wallace yeah. out in la and um yeah and i'll never forget this lauren so it, it, they had this beautiful service um jackson brown was there and and um mick fleetwood and and uh you know a whole, whole bunch of his of ian's friends and family his wife margie put this together and uh I'm in this room. I, I might have been talking to his wife, and this person comes by me pushing a cart. He's got a baseball hat on, big guy, husky guy, you know, solid looking guy comes by me, stops, turns, and looks at me. It's Neil. <laughs> and he's, he's, you know, you, you would have thought he was part of the catering crew, you know? And he stopped to say hello, yeah. and he, he said, uh, you know, you know how he, how he, he was. And he said, um, so so nice of you to come all this way, you know, for for Ian. Um, you know, he really thought the world of you, or something like that. And uh, we chatted for a minute, and then he said, "I I, I can't hang around. I, I'm on catering duty." <laughs> and I see him later, like picking up empty cups, and I'm going, "This guy's unbelievable." You know, I mean, he was just so selfless. And then a few years later, yeah, it had to be. This would have been around 2011. Um, his, his, and you know, our mutual friend, Freddie Gruber passed away and they had a little get together at the sportsman's lodge in LA. And, and uh, I flew out for that. And, and Neil was sort of like a, an MC for this, this tribute that they were doing. People were coming up and speaking and, um, and I'll never forget this again. I was standing outside chatting with some people and he came over really kind of went out of his way to come over and say hello. And I, you know, I'd seen him, I didn't want to bother him because he was, he was like running this whole thing and organizing it. And I didn't want to get in the way. I just, at some point I figured I'd just say hello to him, wave to him. And he came over, he made it a point to come over and say, again, you know, um, I was hoping you'd come out for this. You know, I know you and Freddie were really close and, um, 
this, it's great that you're here. And, and, uh, but you know, he had a smile on his face. I, I, I guess the only way I can explain this, and that's why I said he was such a strong man is he, you know, he wasn't sitting there being sad. He was just thinking all the, you know, and he, when he spoke, he spoke of all the funny things and good things. Um, and I thought, man, I, I want to be like that too. You know, I want to remember my friends in a happy way and a positive way. And, uh, and, and, you know, not be sad about things and kind of like I am right now. But, um, so yeah. I, I really admired that about well, him, his strength. He was, he was a rock. He, he really was a rock. You know, he went through the, the tragedies in the, in the nineties and, and, uh, you know, obviously he brought something from that. Um, heck yeah. he took off and, and on his bike and he wrote an amazing book through those travels and and uh he he is a rock and such a big brain on the guy uh he was just a very very interesting human being and who just happened to be an incredible drummer that would write his parts that would be like no one else's parts um and he spent a lot of time doing that He, he took it very very seriously yeah, no doubt. But at the same time, he was a load of the laughs too, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, yeah. we had a lot of fun times. We, You know, we'd have these long drum rehearsals. We'd go in and at drum channel and we'd rent the, the studio out for a month and we'd be in there for the whole month, just him getting his hands together and me programming or, you know, doing some kind of maintenance on anything. And usually it was with a brand new drum set. Uh, but we'd spend a lot of time and then it was the old, we'd rehearse to rehearse yeah. because we'd go from there to band rehearsals, which would sometimes be four months long. And then we'd go into a, an arena or a venue that we could hang the production in and we'd do another two weeks. So all together, before we even do one show in front of the punters was uh, two and a half months before we even saw an audience. Wow. So they were very serious at what they were doing and they didn't want to go out there looking bad. That so explains a lot. That explains was, why we spent a lot of, we yeah. spent a lot of time in, in the room at, at drum channel together, just yeah. him and me ordering lunch. Don would order lunch <laughs> and uh, we'd, we'd go to the olive garden with John good. Yes. As, as often <laughs> as you wanted to. And, uh, but we, we, we really got close doing that, you know, and, and, um, it was a, such a great experience. Yeah. I had Don Lombardi on this show with me about a year ago, in fact, and I, he told that story about how you guys would be, you know, in lockout in the studio and Neil would, would rehearse to rehearse. Like, so that by the time yep. he got with, uh, Getty and Alex, he had all his shit down. Like it was like, he was just, then it was just a question of the band you know, which I, which is, is so cool. Like he, you know, he wasn't going to go there unprepared. Um, and then, you know, potentially take more time to have to rehearse with the band. He like, he had all his parts there and like, let's just tighten it up. Let's just get in the zone, you know? Well, we, I mean, before we would even go there, uh, he would have, he would be sending, we'd be doing a lot of email communicating between the three of us or Ged, Alex and, and, and uh and neil and myself because i would be the first one that would be part of the rehearsals so they would send me the the uh, set list that they were throwing around 
uh, on trying to agree on what and what. So I would make uh, a song list uh, on CD and we'd just use a little discman. And so that's how he worked uh, to get his hands back in order and to get back in shape. Uh, we would just play the album tracks on the CD and he would play to that. So it was always exactly like the record. Wow. And with the drums. And that's he didn't, why. Yeah. He didn't remove the drum tracks. He, didn't, he just no, played. Didn't, no, yeah. no. Yeah. He just, he wow. just tri- played along. That's awesome. Uh, and that's how we did it. You know? Um, and yeah, we'd five day work weeks and uh, four weeks of that. And by that point he was sick of playing drums, <laughs> <laughs> but but he would go into, uh, you know, we, we, we'd usually move from the West Coast to Toronto because Toronto, uh, Getty and Al would, would always win the, the coin toss that we were going to do <laughs> band rehearsals or production rehearsals. Um, it's only once when I was there that we did it on the West Coast, and it was only because we were going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. But uh, Usually it happened out here in Toronto. So we would move everything across the country and we'd start band rehearsals and we'd do another four weeks of that. But, and there was still, you know, arguing to be done between them all at what was right. But at least we had the the time and the BPMs and everything was locked in. So it was us against the other two guys on what it was like for every song and yeah, what the speed yeah. was and this and that. And so we had it right from the record. So we were right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, speaking of BPM, so um, may, probably a lot of Neil's you know, fans might already know the answer to this question. I'm going to ask you, though. Um, did you, did Neil, like, were the songs all synced up to a click live or did he just use like a metronome just no, to no. count the song off? No, no. Yeah. See- the only time he had anything that was close to a a, uh, a metronome was a sequencer. Got so okay. no, no, we're not. We weren't playing tracks like so many bands do nowadays. Yeah, no, I wouldn't think uh, so. They were just they triggered everything on the stage. I mean, Getty yeah. was he was like an octopus over there uh, between bass, singing, uh, keyboards, Taurus pedals. The guy was an octopus, and that's why it, it was so difficult for him to get it right during rehearsals because he had so much going on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Neil had samples that he was hitting that he was triggering. Alex had uh, Taurus pedals that he was triggering. Uh, but no, never, never click tracks. Uh, the only click track uh, would be a sequencer that would be part of whatever song, but yeah. there wasn't always <clears throat> no. No, Neil, this just would, uh, it would be in his brain by the, you know, four weeks of, of constant playing to the record and then playing to a a click track during band rehearsals that we had from the BPMs from the the original recorded songs. Uh, So we'd keep them on a leash for getting that right. So he would play with a, a click during rehearsals with the band. And we had those, those BPMs from the, the actual record. So when it came time, so to they do, should have been all. Yeah. So when he would do these songs live, he just, those, those BPMs were just like in his, 
in his in the ether. They were yeah. in his brain at that point. Yeah, he just knew. Yeah, it was going to be one twenty eight. He just he had that in his in his zone. Yeah, yeah. That's what I. That's what I. Plus, thought. you had just, to really have that down because we'd we'd have sequencers flying in and out every once in a while. So if something was to come in and it was off, uh, it was obviously up to Tony to to trigger that to bring it on, or there was a, a Taurus pedal. But if anything, if there was a mess up, it was probably uh, either get or Al that might have been a hair off or whatever. Yeah. But you can deal with that kind of stuff if it's just that slight. But uh, no, there there was no clicks going on, no no none of that stuff. So, and there's so much of it that goes on now. So, I know, I know. And and uh, Kathleen Kelly, by the way, our dear friend Kathleen Kelly says hello. Oh, Kelly, hi, Kathleen Kelly Shue. Um, yes, man, didn't want to forget her. Um, Wonderful product. Oh, love it. I, I, I yeah. yeah. I used to. I used to do a version of that in the old days with aircraft cable and uh, just a, um, we'd try we try and hook this thing up so that it was in a sweet spot in the bass drum. In fact, I remember one of Neil's kits having that at one point. So I'm not sure whether it was uh, Robert Scoville, their, their front of house guy back in the, in the time or what, but uh, uh, it was just killer trying to get this stuff in a happy place in the bass drum and you, you're, bloodied and everything but uh, the kelly shoe <laughs> system is the best it is i yeah. find i i use and as soon as i if i get hired by somebody i got bass drums i immediately call them so and everybody's usually happy with it that's great well take note of that everybody watching kelly shoe system um i have to tell Absolutely. you our dear friend uh lenny demuzio's daughter therese i'm, I'm sure you know therese Therese, of yes. course um, is sending warm thoughts and love to Lauren. And uh, I was going to say, I, 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 you know, I, I can't think of Neil without thinking of Lenny, and I can't think of Lenny without thinking of Neil. And uh, I, I remember the, the last time True. I saw you guys live, which would have been the fall of 2002, uh, we, Lenny came with Jim McGathy and myself to the Boston Garden. You guys were playing there. And I, yeah, I, I, remember I remember that. How, you remember that? Yeah. And we presented Neil with like this, yeah, this absolutely. Uh, Zildjian Award. You remember that? And yeah, um, sure. And he was, he was, you know, he was a very appreciative and he was very sincere. And then once he saw Lenny was with us, that like made him happier than anything. You know what I mean? It was like his old yeah. friend was there with him. And um, he said, we took a picture. I think we all took a picture. And then he said to me, how about how about one of just the two old of the old guard or something of you know him and Lenny and it was this you know this beautiful picture of him and Lenny, um, but uh, well I I was I was just blown away I made it into Lenny's book yes which I was completely blown away with and I was just so honored well of course you because should be in that, he's on. just he's 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 a monster in the drum industry uh, he was he was just so fantastic and he was everywhere and, and he was very, very loved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he was a, a character. If you're the professor's professor, Lenny was the rock stars, rock star. And that was a, that was <laughs> something Bill Morgan said at Lenny's service, which I thought was beautiful. He was, he was the rock star to the rock stars. And he really was, I mean, yeah, yeah he was yeah. an incredible guy. Just uh, and very close to Billy too. So yeah, yep. They were they were very close. Yeah, man. I you know you I I just want to 
congratulate you on um, just the incredible body of work that you have going back, you know, 50 years basically. And, and let's not forget most recently you've been working with my good friend, Eric Singer and the kiss guys, which uh, Eric's certainly no slouch. That must've been a lot. He's a wonderful guy. We've gotten very close, uh, you know, taking this time away from it. Uh, I didn't want to do it, but I had to for physical and mental reasons. We were, I had just gotten COVID before going down to South America on there at the last run down there a couple of few months ago now. Um, and it just was really difficult for me to keep going. So I had to do this. I, we brought in somebody else to, to sub in for me. Uh, it's not necessarily a retirement that I've, you know, I think retirements are for, uh, athletes and, and, uh, and money fat CEOs. Um, you know, they're about the only ones that can afford to, to retire, uh, comfortably, but in this business, you know, it's, um, it's hit or miss. And, and, uh, but I, I decided to do it. It was a difficult situation, uh, or a decision I should say. Uh, but he, Eric's over in Europe. We keep in contact. I, I still do certain things for him to make sure that he's supplied with what he needs. Um, you know, I, I started the gig and I'm going to end the gig in whatever way, yeah. but I needed to take this time and, and take the summer off and, and, uh, you know, watch my blue Jays on TV and <laughs> play some golf and, and, um, uh, just do normal stuff for a change. So I don't miss being over in Europe where they are right now, but at the same time, I'm always thinking about him yeah. and he's, we become very, very good friends and I enjoy working with him. He's such a great guy. He's such a great dude. He sure and, is. uh, I miss him. But yeah. uh, right now it's time for myself and, and, uh, and for Charlene. And, and uh, I'm happy that I'm home. Me too. Lord. I really yeah. Am. I mean, you, you've certainly put the time in on the road, you know, and it's not a bad thing to have a summer off, you know, which, which I, I, I especially I now with yeah. how screwed up this, the travel is and everything. It's yeah. just so much more difficult nowadays since, since the pandemic hit and we got shut down for, you know, all those different times. And, and we tried to do shows. We did a, one in Dubai on New Year's uh, that went off great. But at the same time, it, it was so difficult to get out there and do it properly. And it's still difficult to do it because people are still coming down with COVID out there yeah. and uh, it's not gone. It's not going to be, it's not going to be gone for a, a while. Um, right. I don't think it's ever going to be gone, to be honest with you. I think we're going to be getting boosters for a long time. I think so. But you, uh, you mentioned I thought line. it was a good time to, it was a good time for me to not do it. It's perfect now because I'm hearing about all these other nightmares of people travels and stuff like that. And I'm going, yeah. I'm happy to not be doing it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I hear you. I really, I really am. Nothing wrong with being home for the summer too, you know, and the nice weather and, and no. all that brings, you know, oh, perfect yeah i was gonna say you mentioned off when we were offline that you know the news of of mick having covid and the stones having to cancel some shows in in europe and you probably heard ringo uh two members in ringo's band steve lukather and edgar winner so they've had to put their show back all their remaining shows back into september so you're right i mean it's it's out there it's it's still affecting you can't you 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 can't keep away from it you know you you can go into it as tight a COVID bubble as you can. Uh, 
on kiss we we tried doing that you know and and uh it just got really ugly uh when we were like last year when we actually lost somebody one of the one of our guys died of it and it's just such a horrible thing man um but it's still out there and it will be out there you'll be hearing about this on tours all over the place um it doesn't matter how much of a bubble you have somebody's there's a good chance somebody's going to get it and it can spread like that this this omicron thing you know Um, which is really sad but it's it's the touring business the touring industry is so different right now um you're kind of on thin ice a lot of the times you know you really have to watch your back yeah well we're getting close to the to um you're getting close to be let off the hook on uh, on this little <laughs> chat we're having, but um, I want to jump back for a second. I, I kind of I, I meant to sort of do this when we were talking about Neil, um, but I was going to ask you to maybe. I think people watching, I think would would enjoy hearing kind of what um, an average day on the road was like with with uh, on on tour with Rush, working for Neil. Like what your day, you know, loading it at the venue and then some of the things you did to get prepped for the gig, whether it's changing heads, I'd like to know. Um, well, it depended. The R40 tour, which was the final tour, was a little different because I had three drum sets. I had the R40, and then I had El Darko, which was a throwback to the old Slingerland kit with the orchestra chimes and the timbales and going back into the early days because the uh the show degressed from modern songs or the recent songs back into the stone age of the playing in the high schools so the whole the show ran like that uh, with uh, props and, and as i said two different drum sets the third drum set was the warm-up kit that was always in his in his uh, dressing room. Yeah. Uh, but so that would have been a little different. Um, but I still had to set all that, those drums up uh, on the last tour. Beforehand, you know, when I only had the drum set, the the revolving drum set on the the stage, I would show up. I'd go in and I'd set up the, the warm-up kit, which is a five-piece uh, DW kit in the in the the uh, in his dressing room. And then I would have to wait for lighting to, to go up because Howard always had a huge lighting rig and I set up only in the middle of the stage. So unless that lighting rig was up in the air, I could not really do much. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, once the lighting rig was up in the air, I had built the riser, the, uh, the, the uh, revolving riser. And, uh, and then I'd start screwing hardware in and, and, uh, when heads needed to be changed, I'd change them. Um, after he, he studied with Freddie, there was less and less of doing that because he really, he wasn't playing through the drums so much as he was in the earlier days. So he was, he was really uh, cautious of, of heads and the longer we could use the heads, the happier he was, which is good. They settle, mm-hmm. you know, brand new heads all the time. You don't really get the best out of it. Um, but I would change whatever heads need to be done, clean symbols, do the wiring for all the electronics. This is when I had the 360 kits 
and uh, and then I would wait for a sound check. And Neil would, uh, I could probably go out and to the minute he would be coming in on his motorcycle to the bus. Uh, he had it down perfectly when he would arrive. So I would go out there, say hello. He'd be in working on his next map of the next day's travel. And uh, then we'd do sound check. Always did sound check. Always did sound check. Uh, and then um, break for dinner and then do the show and then tear it all down. Wow. And yeah. uh, the, the last show or the last uh, tour was had a lot more gear because I had two massive drum sets and um, I had some help by some of the crew guys just to expedite everything going quicker. So the whole production would move out of the building quicker, but uh, I had my hands full, a lot of symbols to clean. Uh, <laughs> I always did everything myself. I, I didn't yeah. feel comfortable with other people doing anything for me. So I'm like I said earlier, I'm my worst enemy for that kind of stuff <laughs> i'm very particular in how i do my things i understand so, yeah you wanted but that was it. that was a typical day that was a typical day and did he like his symbols cleaned every for every show like he liked them to be i liked them you liked him that way <laughs> no <that's laughs> of course cool. he liked it that way because yeah. he always he, he always had it that way yeah. um so and uh, i like a, a, a squeaky clean look at drum set and uh, everybody that I worked for, uh, the only couple of guys that I haven't, uh, that I've held off cleaning cymbals were Keith Carlock and Steve Smith. They're, you know, they like a worn in K, you know, um, and I didn't have it in my heart to clean them because they just, they're those kind of guys that don't like it done. <laughs> and I totally understand. Yeah, you know, yeah. when a symbol breaks, you put up a new one. But uh, no, I always Neil never had a problem with having a, a very clean drum set, and we always had such beautiful drum sets built by DW that you want to have them clean and looking special. You know, sure, yeah. So absolutely. Uh, but I, I, uh, I enjoyed my work. And I took it seriously. I know you did. And and one last question too. Um, did Neil have like a regular warm up routine before each gig? Did he have a, a set exercise or exercises that he did to, to warm up? Yeah. 20 minutes exactly. 20 on minutes. On a warm up kit. Yeah. On, on, a, on and an he actual did, kit. Uh, yeah. 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 A five piece uh, kit, kit that I had in the, in, uh, the dressing room. Gotcha. Uh, okay. um, single rack, two floors. Uh, he'd move the floors around every once in a while, different sides to try something different, but it was always 20 minutes long. It was set. And uh, a little bit of it was the solo, little bits of the solo thrown in um, that he would do that day, that night. Um, but it was pretty much always the same. He kind of did everything that he needed to uh, with the chops uh, during that period. And he would do it uh, 15 minutes before the show started. So he was nice and yeah. warmed up by that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Well, Lauren, this has been amazing. I, 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 I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. And, and uh, thank, thank you, John. I really uh, enjoyed it, man. And it's great to see you. It's great to see you too, buddy. It is. It's so, and 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 I'm 
on behalf of everybody watching, I know, you know, this has been a highly anticipated show by the, the, uh, number of people I know that turned out to watch it. So thank you so much. And, and I want to tell everybody, remind you all that modern drummer has a book, a Neil Peart legend series book that you can buy from modern drummer, um, with incredible pictures and interviews and a lot of the stuff Lauren's been talking about. So, uh, meant to mention that at the, at the beginning, but I'll mention it now. So check out modern drummers, legend series, Neil Peart book. And, uh, Lauren, thank you so much, brother. It's so good to see you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, John. And thanks for everybody that watched. And uh, everyone take care out there. All Love right. you, buddy.